Welcome. You are listening to a sermon preached at Church at the Armory. If you like what you hear, share it. God bless you. All right. I've got a long way to go and a short time to get there. I was texting my good friend, uh, Kent Job, he's pastor of uh, uh, Church of Christ here in town this morning. And he, he said, man, y'all pray for me. The first service was not good. I tried to do too much with too little time. And I said, uh, well, I'm going to do that too. <laughs> this is the reason I printed out a printout. It's going, to, it's going to save some time because we're going to do a lot of scripture. Let me just set this up for a second. Um, Yesterday, I've had this done for, for a few days now, just completely printed out, ready to go. But yesterday, I watched this video where this apologist is arguing with a professing, keyword professing, Christian who pastors a church who's also a homosexual. And they're, and they're arguing the, the scriptures. And one of the things that you have to do when you start when you start. Um, saying certain things in the scripture are not what they say they are. Does that make sense? Whenever you, you, when you have to like, because you want to live a certain way, so you, and the scripture says you can't do that, so you have to create question marks around the scripture rather than change your life. And so once you, once you start doing that, it will end up, the road always leads to the question, then who is Jesus? When you start messing with the inerrancy and the, and the fallacy of the infallible scriptures, when you start messing with the scriptures, it will always lead down this same pathway that will come to the question, well, then who is Jesus? Because if the scripture is not true, well, then the man is not true. He is the word. And the best way to discredit Jesus is the best way to actually prove who Jesus is. What I mean by that is... If what Jesus did to prove who he was was take the Old Testament scriptures, the law, the prophets, the Psalms, and the, and the writings of the Hebrew scriptures, and he showed them who he was. In order to um, discredit Christ, well, then you, have to, then you can start picking apart the Old Testament scriptures and saying, well, that's not valid. In other words, this man said, uh, this man said well, Hebrews, or not, not Hebrews, Isaiah chapter 53, right? The wounded one. Right? The pierce for our transgressions. You know what I'm talking about? That, that's not talking about Jesus. And these guys are like, what? In other words, what you have to do is you have to take the Hebrew scriptures and you have to, go, you have to tear them apart and say they don't mean what they say. And then you can discredit Christ. And once you've discredited Christ, you can create a God in your own image and you can believe whatever you want to. What I'm going to do this morning is fundamental as literally the gospel. And what I mean by that is, is the gospel was first presented by taking a psalm or taking a prophet or taking the law and describing who Christ was from that. And I'm literally, as we're preparing for Passion Week, I'm going to take Psalm 22 and we're going to go verse by verse very quickly. We're going to go verse by verse through Psalm 22 and I'm going to show us Jesus Christ, the crucified one. 
through Psalm 22, not that we would necessarily learn anything or, or not that necessarily we, we would, uh, this is, this is, the scripture is not intended to kind of help you. There will be one point maybe that kind of helps you, but it's really for us to have, a, it's to know who Christ is and the established Christ through the word of God. This is exactly what Jesus did. He took his disciples in, re- in, in resurrected form. And on the road to Emmaus, the Bible says he, he, he began to uh, unfold the scriptures to them, starting all the way back with the law, working through the prophets, working through the Psalms. He took the disciples, walked through the door in the room, and sat down and unfolded the scriptures to them. That makes sense? He did, this is what Jesus did to establish the gospel. So, Psalm 22 and I've got, it's all laid out, all wonky and funky, and I've got notes in there, and I'm going to try to explain it to you so you can take this home and maybe chew on it, or you can, and, but really, this is going to make it a lot faster. Psalm 22 is the psalm of David. It's a song. They sang this song. I, I kind of imagine it, not that it would sound the same, but kind of like what we just sang a while ago. A song that, that really just is the declarations of who God is and what He does. Does that make sense? I love that kind of song we sang a while ago because it's just, it, it, is, it just declares who Jesus is. Does that make sense? The God, the Lord of hosts. And so this is what this psalm does. Um, a little bit of history here. Some of the Psalms, you can read them, maybe 91, maybe uh, 31, we just did that. Uh, You can read some of the Psalms and you can realize that David is writing a Psalm from the experience of a personal experience he had. So he was in the cave, he writes a song out of that experience, right? He is the king, uh, maybe his son's trying to overtake the throne, he writes a song out of that experience. There is no, um, uh, scholars say they can't figure out any event in David's life where he would have been writing a psalm from an event that happened to him in Psalm 22. If that is true, then literally David is prophesying via song hundreds and thousands of years earlier. That makes sense? Hundreds of years earlier, this is not David writing a psalm from his personal experience. This is him writing a psalm prophetically, declaring these things about the one who is to come. He's just writing these psalms, and it, and, and it is remarkable. It is uh, incredible. It is, uh, just, I mean, just a, a bona fide miracle at how accurately David could prophetically describe the man and the events of the crucifixion in Psalm 22. You'd have to look at this even from an objective scientific mind and go, well, you, this just like this is this is statistically impossible that someone who's been dead for hundreds and hundreds, I say thousand of years, could write something so accurately before it ever happened. Amen. So Psalm 22, let's jump into it. It's not on the screen because it's in your hand because we got a lot to do here. So y'all, y'all cool? Let's pray. Holy Ghost, we thank you for the word. The word is a miracle. The word is alive. The word is part of the, is the testimony of Jesus Christ. The preaching of the word is the testimony of Jesus Christ. This is literally prophecy being laid out. And so we thank you for the word. I pray, 
Paul's prayer in Ephesians chapter 1, 17, that the word, the revelation that we get from this message would open our eyes to understand how deep and wide and is the breadth of the love of God to understand that Jesus, you really are more than just some story time that we celebrate in different holidays of the year, but you are alive, you really came, you really lived, you really died, and you really rose. And the word spoke of it before it ever happened. And it's a miracle that that builds our faith to believe and put our whole life's trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, God, grant us a revelation of the word of God. Everybody said amen. Now, most songs, you know, you kind of want to ease into them, right? You kind of want to just kind of like warm up your voice a little bit and maybe just kind of ease into it. No, this Psalm of David from the first word, first line, it's boom. I'm not going to sing it because I know it's going to sound like that, but my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anybody ever heard that before? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Boom. Here we are. Not tiptoeing. David isn't like, you know, we're going to step into the pool and, you know, dip your toe in the water and just kind of, kind of ease or what. No, he, he dives head first prophetically, into the moment of the cross. And here we are. Now, not to, this is not embarrassing whatsoever. So, so uh, I'm not trying to go, well, these people knew more than other people knew. But maybe you're here today and you realize for the very first time that when Jesus said that on the cross, it wasn't his own original thought he was having, but he was regurgitating a scripture. And maybe for the first time you're going, oh, wow, I thought Jesus just said that because that was what he was feeling at the time. And I'm sure he was feeling that. Amen? But really, this is the miracle of what the word can do. What the worm who feasts and feasts and feasts before it comes into a resurrected butterfly... Keith, I didn't even listen to your sermon, but good job, right? All right, so it's the idea of the Jesus feasted on the word to the point that... When he is in the throng of death, when he is in the hands of God, when he is there uh, suspended between heaven and earth, and he is literally being crucified, the one moment, the one purpose of his entire life existence, and whole things coming to a head, and it is stressing him out to the point where he bleeds blood. What comes out of him is not his original thought but something he had been storing in his spirit his entire life. Now, it was original because the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ put it in Paul, or excuse me, David, you know what I'm saying? But my point is, is that how many of us, when we come into it, and this is the one point I would say that we can like glean from as far as personally, how many of us, when we come into the crux of our life, the one pressure point, do we begin to say our own thoughts? Make sense? But Jesus is in the pressure point of his life in the very shadow of death. And the only thing he knows to do is repeat David. He's not expressing an original thought. He's not expressing something he wants to say on his own. So from that point right there, You have to know, as we read the rest of the story of the crucifixion in Psalm 22, you have to know that in the mind of Jesus Christ, he is thinking Psalm 22. 
So there's lots of verses that he doesn't say out loud. He only makes seven little short statements. But there's lots of verses. There's 20, I think, four whatever verses in, in Psalm 23. And he is meditating on that entire psalm as he is going through the process. So the answer to his question is in the psalm, even though we never read about it in the crucifixion scene. Does that make sense? And so here he is, and he's got Psalm 22 on his heart. He leads off the way, the way David led off prophetically with the psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everything else we read from this point forward in Psalm 22, you can, you can bet your bottom dollar it ran through Jesus' head on the cross. Y'all good? So let's talk about what does Psalm 22 say? Far from my lips are the words of my groaning. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. David says this. This is how Jesus feels. I'm crying out, but I don't feel like there's an answer. Now, what we have here, but the the difference is Jesus knows the answer because he knows Psalm 22. But this is how he feels in the moment. Now, uh, the Psalms do this really, really beautiful thing is that they talk about how man feels, how the David feels, how Asaph feels, how the writer of the, the song, it talks about how he feels, but then it'll bounce over here about who God is. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you are this. And so what you'll notice in the notes is after this quote, uh, if you go to, you skip down to verse 3, 4, and 5, I've indented it to the right so that you would understand that it's two different type uh, sayings. The, the, the non-indented part of your, of your page is what man says. The indented part of your page is what man says about God. It's what man says about his situation. It's, what man, it's how man feels. And then it's the, it's, it's the other side. It's about what he says about God. So, if we go back to uh, Mark chapter 15... This shows you that I just, I just wrote the scripture that you would understand that he put he said that on the cross, right? He says it again in Matthew, or Matthew 27, says the same thing. This is one of the sayings of Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus, let's just pretend. I think that Jesus is going through Psalm 22 in his head while he's on the cross. And he starts off at that moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now get down to verse 3. He made a statement about his situation. He made a statement how he feels. Where are you? But this is, the, his, this is his own response to his own question, but you are holy. Verse 3. This is how I am, but this is what you are. Uh, one of the things you've heard preached several times is that through the statements of Jesus Christ, Oftentimes in the, on the cross, in the crucifixion scene, he identifies God as Father. But when he gets to this statement, he doesn't. He identifies him as God. Right? I mean, I've heard that before. And here he is, and he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then he switches. But you are holy. Look at me. When we go through stuff... The Psalms give us permission to describe how we feel. But they don't give us permission to only describe how we feel. They also tell us that every Psalm, I'm not sure if there's a, 
any writings, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, I don't sure there's any writings where we get permission to only describe how we feel and not offset how we feel with the statement about who God is. I'm, though, Job said, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. You see what I'm saying? So, so you may be going through what Jesus is, and he identifies with David. Where are you, right? Where are you? My God, my God, have you forsaken me? What a crazy question. Jesus got through teaching just, we'll say days, weeks, months earlier about the kingdom and saying he'll never leave you nor forsake you. And here he is quoting David, have you forsaken me? And then he, and then he, then he, then he offsets that one statement with this statement, but you are holy. Then what do, he goes on to say, you are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. So, Uh, Verse 4 and 5, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted you and you rescued them. To you they cried out and they fled to safety. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So as he's thinking about his cross experience, he can remind himself, the people who've gone on before me, the Abrahams, Isaacs, the fathers of the faith, they trusted you and they weren't disappointed. I can trust you now in this moment. It feels like you've forsaken me, but I will not be disappointed. And this is what he's doing. He's going back and forth. Two things he does in that passage of scripture. He talks about the holiness of God and the history of God. When you are going through crisis in your life, remind yourself that he is holy and remind yourself of his history. Because if he's holy, if he's holy, then he is rightly placed in our attention. Sovereign and holy. Right? So we remind ourselves of his holiness. We remind himself ourselves of his history. And that's exactly what Jesus does, quoting in his heart Psalm 22 on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you are holy, and my fathers trusted you, and, and they were not disappointed. And I will not be disappointed. That's what he's thinking. That's what he's expressing. But then... Another, maybe another swelling of pain grips his body. Maybe he ran out of breath and he got to push against the nail to stand himself back up, to fill his lungs back up with, with air as they're halfway filled with fluid. And he, maybe another moment of his humanity grips him by the throat. And he goes back to verse 6. Y'all with me? Page one, verse six, I'm a worm. That's why I said a while ago, I'm a worm. Jesus quotes David, I am, a, in his heart, I'm a worm, not a person. There's a, there's a method to this madness. A disgrace of mankind and despised, everybody say despised. Despised, despised by the people. All who see me deride me, they sneer, they shake their heads saying... Turn him over to the Lord. Let him, let him, God, save him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. Everybody know where I'm going with this. Jesus says, I'm a worm. I am in his heart. I'm, I'm identifying with David. David prophesies this guy's going to be a worm. He's going to be despised. Isaiah 53. I've got it written out right there for you. Let's read it for a second, okay? Isaiah 53. Uh, sorry, Mr. Heretic. Isaiah 53 is about Jesus Christ. This is a good time to say amen. Because y'all were scaring me for a second. Who has believed our report? Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
for he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Again, Chad, I printed out papers for you so you could read along right here. They're sharing. Who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Like a root out of dry ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we would look at him, nor an appearance that we would take pleasure in him. He was, everybody say it, despised. Isaiah prophesies about the despising of the Messiah. David prophesying about the, he's a worm, he's despised. Jesus must feel like in that moment. It's crazy not to think that he would feel despised and rejected in that moment. Hated. As literally hell itself was possessing the people around them to jeer and despise this man. He could see it on their faces. He could hear it in the tone of their voice. How Alone must he have felt in total rejection and totally despised by his own creation. He's despised and abandoned by men, a man of great pain, familiar with sickness, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and had no regard for him. However, somebody say, however, however. it was our sickness that he himself bore. It was our pain that he carried. We ourselves assumed that he had been afflicted and struck down by God and humiliated by God. But he was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment of our peace was laid upon him and by his wounds we are healed. And all of us like sheep have been led astray. Each of us have turned to his own wicked way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us to fall upon him. I'm preaching Jesus to you this morning. I'm preaching Jesus to you this morning. And so Jesus and, and, and I don't know how to keep saying Paul. David are prophesying about this despised one, this rejected one, this worm of a man. And then verse 7 and 8 say they shake their heads. Verse 8, turn him over to the Lord. Let him save him. Let him, the Lord, rescue him because he delights in him. It's mocking. It's mocking. David is prophesying about people who would stand there and wag their heads and mock him. Well, if you are God, right, let God come rescue you. It's mocking. And wouldn't you know it? I mean, who would have thought? Jesus Christ on the cross, despised and rejected, Let's read it. Verse uh, Matthew 27. At that time, two rebels were being crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. And they were passing by, speaking abusively at him. And they were what? Shaking their heads. How crazy accurate is the scripture? Is that a man would prophesy hundreds and the a few thousand years before, that not only what they would essentially say, but how they would say it. Shaking their heads. Right? And then Matthew points out, they shook their heads and said, you, because Jesus had said, essentially, 
He is the Son of God. Right? You, are you going to destroy the temple, rebuild it in three days? And it's the same thing. If you are who you say you are, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come up up that cross. It's the same type mocking statement. Well, if he is the man of God, let God come and do something with him. Not thinking that he really is, mocking that the idea that he thinks he is. If you are the son of God, save yourself. And so here is David, Psalm 22, and he's accurately uh, prophesying exactly how it would go with Jesus Christ. So here we are. He's the worm. He's despised. He's being mocked and ridiculed. And then he, went, he goes from this side, verse 9, over to this side. Yet... You, capital Y, God, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. Such a powerful imagery. The psalmist is going back to the womb and the mother's breast. Is there any scenario where Jesus has to look at his own mother in a moment of death? Isn't this incredible? <laughs> isn't this incredible? Isn't, isn't this almost like exactly how God had it planned out? Here he is. Jesus, here he's David. You are he who brought me forth from, my, from, my, from the womb. You made me to trust when upon my mother's breast I was cast upon you from birth. The, and and y'all know this is my big deal. Uh, Philippians chapter 2, uh, 5 through 11, the God of the universe, the God who knows nothing of what it means to be a human, laid down that, took on humanity, and came to the earth, and now the God who, ha- who has needed not to trust anything ever in his entire existence has to trust a human woman that was created by him to keep him alive. I was cast upon you from birth. You've been my God from my mother's womb. Do not be far from me. It's an old back to verse 1. For trouble is near. In the same way that a baby can't be far from his mother because she protects and and nurtures and keeps him. and, and, And we have no choice but to fall upon the trust of that mother. Now, in the same way, on the cross, I'll read it for you, uh, crucifixion and death were the culmination of Jesus' humanity. God became a man just as uh, the God-man was dependent on an earthly mother to live and survive in birth and infancy. Now he is dependent upon a heavenly father in suffering and death and ultimately to resurrect. But it's none of Jesus' own doing. It's his willingness to be dependent and submitted to the will of the father. It's the same, it's the same willingness to leave that high position and to take on flesh. And that's what, it's what Philippians 2, 5-11 says. And to submit himself to death, even death on the cross. And that same willingness to take on human flesh, be 100% dependent upon this woman to keep him alive, he is now 100% dependent upon God to not disappoint as his fathers were not disappointed. That makes sense? To see him through. And it's, and just, it's just nuts. Because the psalmist is talking about his mom. And Jesus is up there suspended. Arms wide open. And looks down at who's there. The woman 
who kept him alive in his infancy. The Bible is cool. Thank you for saying that one person. Verse 12. I'm hurrying, y'all. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They opened their mouths wide at me as ravening and a roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery. My tongue clings to my jaws as you lay me in the dust, a dust of death. Uh, like dogs have surrounded me. Uh, a band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look at me and stare. They divide my garments among them. And they cast lots for my clothing. Written by... David, hundreds, if not a thousand, a couple thousand years before, he is accurately depicting the step-by-step process of the cross. And this is exactly how Jesus described the gospel to his disciples. Let me just take you back to Psalm, Jesus walking with Peter one day. I still got questions. Well, let me take you back to Psalm 22. Right? This is, what we're doing is so fundamental to how we understand the gospel. And I say this to say this. Don't ignore the Old Testament, church. Don't ignore the Old Testament. Okay? Read the whole counsel of God. Understand that what we read in the Old Testament is pointing us to Jesus Christ. Somebody say amen. Uh, all right? So I'm just going to take you bullet points um, through the verses we read 12 through um, 18 there. This is what happened at the cross to fulfill verses 12 through 18. Okay, verse 12, a, a crowd gathered around the cross. A bunch of bulls gathered around the cross. Y'all with me? Go read verse 12 real fast. What does it say? Um, Many bulls have surrounded me. Okay? And strong bulls. These, the people gathered around the cross. Yeah, there were some just normal people, but there was a lot of leaders in, in Israel. There was a lot of priests. and all, the, the strong bulls had gathered around him. Does that make sense? Y'all are tracking me. This is cool, right? I mean, the scripture is cool. Have I said that yet today? Like the Bible is, uh, wow. How could we not read something on a normal daily basis that is just a miracle in itself? How could we not feed ourselves like the worm? that needs nourishment as we morph into a butterfly. I'm tracing a rabbit trail, but I think y'all know what I'm talking about. Verse 12, a cow gathers. Verse 13, they hurled insults. Verse 14, literally, not verse, yes, verse 14, literally, water flowed from him when he was pierced. Okay, verse 14 says, I am poured out like water. It goes on to say, "I my bones are out of joint. Um, extremely probable that the cross experience will require the disjointing of bones through none broken. Um, remember the scene on the Passion of the Christ when they lay him on the cross and they've got to stretch his arm out and pull his arm out of socket to get it to line up where they can put the nail in? Now, whether that's accurate or not, it's very probable that his bones would have been disjointed in order to make the cross thing work, though not broken, which is also prophetic symbolism of how this thing would last. That's why he wasn't hitting the knees to break his knees um, because to keep and maintain prophecy. But the idea is one of the reasons we can know that maybe his bones were disjointed in at least some parts of his body is because it was prophesied and everything else has been pretty much right <laughs> and there was a good chance to make it all uh, one of the ways you would he would suffer 
One of the ways he would lose oxygen was to be able not to hold himself up in proper uh, position so he would suffocate and so they would pull bones out of socket and it would literally be excruciating. Can you imagine your arm being out so I can try to pull up on that thing? That's what your Jesus did for you. His heart, melting like wax, symbolized the emotional suffering he bore. So one thing we hardly ever can talk about, because I'm not sure we can fully understand it whatsoever, is the emotional suffering. We talk about his physical suffering, but what it must have felt like to take the sin of the world upon him. The most grotesque thing I've ever done, thought, uh, experienced, been and to think that that was upon him, not to multiply that by every person who's ever lived. Yeah, his heart melt like wax. His tongue swelled up. Verse 15, he asked for a drink. Remember? Literally one of the seven things he says on the cross is, I thirst. Well, that's not a direct quote from the Old Testament, but the idea of him needing water, a drink is, his tongue swelling up. There's literally nothing he says that's not a prophetic fulfillment. Verse 16, he was literally pierced. Hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. You could count the bones. The scripture says his flesh hung like ribbons. The, the, the scourging would have been, it had ripped away the flesh and you could have seen his exposed ribs. Right? Verse uh, verse 17. Um, Verse 18. People stared and mocked. They pointed fingers and laughed. The scriptures tell us that. Verse 18. Verse 18 of Psalm 22. They divide my garments among them. They cast lots for my clothing. And literally, there at his feet, exposed bones, thirsting tongue swelled up in his mouth. There they are at his feet, casting lots. And David is prophesying. He'd, there was no situation where he went through where they gambled over his clothes. He is prophesying hundreds, multiple, couple thousand years before of what was to come. And it is fulfilled to the T. That was verse uh, 12 through 18. This is what I'm going through, right? This is what I'm going through. Verse 19. Let's go back to the other side. But you, everybody say, but you, Lord. But you, Lord, do not be far away. You who are my help. Can you imagine Jesus hanging there? And he doesn't say it out loud, but can you imagine him going through this psalm, having memorized it, having spoken it multiple times, memorized it, and can you imagine what it does to his soul? I've had my, my hands and feet pierced. I can see them gambling over my clothes. He's going step by step. This has happened to me. That's happened to me. This has happened to me, right? And he's, as, he's, as he's reliving Psalm 22 in his mind and literally, and he, this happened, this happened, check, 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 check. And then he says to himself, you are my help. (laughs) Right? No? Right? I mean, there he is. And there's got to be something in him that's, that's giving him some sort of courage to keep breathing another time and to see this thing through the end. 
You are my help. Hurry to my assistance. Save my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. David writing about Dan, you know, David, save me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, underline at the end says, you answered me. I don't like the way that this version, I think, I'm not sure that NASB puts that. In the New King James Version says, save me from the lion's mouth. I got this in your notes. It's in the brackets there. Uh, save me from the lion's mouth and from the lion and from the horns of the wild oxen. And then it makes an emphatic statement. It separates and makes an emphatic statement. You have answered me. It's a crazy important point to make because what's the initial question to start the song? Why have you forsaken me? And, and if we read the cross, if you only ever got to read Matthew chapter 27, you would think that no answer ever came. No. If I only read Matthew and I've only read Mark's account, you would think no answer ever came. But in Jesus' heart, as he's meditating on David, as he's going through it, he knows that God answers him. Yeah. If there is an answer to the question, what is the answer? Hence, the rest of the psalm. And from that point forward, the answer is, is, is in the psalm. That's why I have them shaded there in, in uh, I guess, gray. It's supposed to be yellow, but you know, whatever. Verses 22 through, um, you know, the rest of the end of the psalm. Verse 22, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. Here Jesus Christ is. He's not only standing in, uh, suspended in front of Jerusalem, he is suspended before all Israel. All the brothers, the nation, he is suspended before all Israel and he's fulfilling this prophecy. This verse is huge. Unless I be lifted up, no, I, I, I'll draw on man unto me, right? And so the idea is that he is suspended before his brothers and his laying down life to go through the cross is an act of worship before God and mankind as he's poured out like a drink offering. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's read this. It's in your notes there, last, last section. We don't see him, Jesus, who is made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because, everybody turn your page, <laughs> because of his suffering death, crowned with glory, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Somebody say amen. amen. Death was owed to us all. It was the penalty of our sin. But he tasted death on behalf of us all. Somebody say, God, thank you for mercy. For it was fitting for him for whom all things and through whom all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the originator of their salvation through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from the Father. Somebody, that's a great scripture. For the one who sanctifies us and all of us who are in need of sanctification all come from the bosom of the Father. For this reason, he is not ashamed. Hey, those of you dealing with shame, you're the one dealing with shame. I say that kindly because God's not ashamed. 
Jesus, he removed the reproach and the shame off of you through his death, burial, and resurrection. Somebody say amen. Amen. He's not ashamed to, Jesus Christ is not ashamed to present you to the Father. For he is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to present you to the Father, and he's he's not ashamed to look at you and own you as his sibling. This is my brother. This is my sister. And then guess what he quotes? The writer of Hebrews, whoever he is. I will proclaim your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. Direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 22. It's the idea that Jesus on the cross, he not only bears the sin of the world, but he makes an announcement to all mankind. From now on, things are different. From now on, everything changes. Right? His cross is not just the action. It's the the official kingdom announcement that from this day forward, everything's different. Verse 23. I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this kind of quickly. Who... You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify his name. Now, but, now stop. Before we go any further, I want you to imagine Jesus going through these verses in his head as he's on the cross as the answer to the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to imagine he's there processing this verse by verse. He's, he is strengthening his own soul by, 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 by asking these questions, Okay. So, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All descendants of Jacob, glorify his name. Stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he is not despised. Come on! Capital H-E there. Mankind despises me, but my Father in heaven. Where are you? I know where. I, know, I may not know where you are right now. I may not feel your presence, but I know one thing. I may be despised by them, but I'm not despised by you. Come on, church. Do you feel that this morning? If that's true for Jesus Christ, he made it true for you. Men may hate you. Men may curse you. Men may uh, may persecute you. Men may lie about you. They will, the Bible says. And you may be despised by someone on this earth, but your heavenly Father does not despise you. In other words, there's your answer to the worm, the despised worm. The answer is, I'm not despised by my father. For he's not despised nor scorned the suffering of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him. He's not hidden his face from Jesus. When he cried to him for help, there's your answer. The psalm starts off with a cry, and the answer is, Jesus, Father heard it. He starts off with a cry of anguish, and the answer is, he heard it. For you... For from you comes praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who hear him. He is, by the way, an offering in that moment. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. 
uh, literally, look at me, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Uh, he wouldn't eat of the last cup. Wouldn't drink of the last cup because he is looking forward to another meal. And rest assured, we will eat and be satisfied. <laughs> Come on. Come on, right? Those who seek him will praise the Lord. May your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth. Why are you doing this, Jesus? Because all the ends of the earth will remember. <laughs> come on, come on. Can you imagine how he is uh, 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 feeding his soul on the answer? Don't forget, he's struggling in the garden to go through this. And he, and he's, he's at the, I mean, he is about to cross the it is finished line. And he is reminding his soul, I'm going through this because everybody will remember. And are we not celebrating the memory of the cross right now? 2023, thousands of years later, we're still remembering. Y'all do not come on. I mean, he's prophesying what we're doing right now. Remembering. I mean, we have tables that we brought over here in remembrance of. We're remembering. So not only is Jesus fulfilling David's prophecy, I am right now. And we are together in remembrance. My poor little paper. All the ends of the earth will remember. And when they remember, they're going to turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will worship you. Why am I in this situation? Jesus is saying, not really saying, I mean, he's like, you know, what's the purpose of this? Because I see generations and families who beget children, who beget children, who beget children, who will remember and who will worship and who will honor me. I'm doing this because I'm changing everything. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. We sang that this morning, the Lord of hosts. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him. Every tongue confess, every knee will bow. Those who live, those who die. But everyone will kneel. Because he's the king. He who cannot keep his own soul alive. <laughs> I'm here to do for them what they can't do for themselves. For those who can't keep their own soul alive, this is, this is what he's doing, right? I'm talking about Jesus. A posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord in coming generations. They will come and they will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. That, listen to me now. That,
I'm going to say it like this, because this is how Jesus says it. It is finished. <laughs> What's the last saying of Jesus on the cross? So this psalm starts. This psalm starts with Jesus saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And everything that happens in between. And then the David said he has performed it, which is pretty much saying like Jesus, it is finished. And this psalm rocks our world. Come on. This song rocks our world. The final phrase of the psalm, as he has performed it, sounds a lot like Jesus' final phrase of his life. It is finished. I have to believe that sandwiched between the first verse of this psalm, have you forsaken me, and the last verse of this psalm, and Jesus is saying he has performed it, slash it is finished, is the answer. Comes in the verses 22 through 31 where Christ reminds himself from Psalm 22 of David's praise and his purpose in suffering and death. All the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. Psalm 22 is the source of some of Jesus' sayings on the cross and the encouragement to endure it. And literally, I want to say to us, this is what Jesus did, and I want to say to us too, we need to get full of the Word of God.